Um, just want to make sure the mic is working because I know we had some issue initially. Good? Um, okay, well, thank you to Mark. Thank you to the session for uh, giving me the opportunity to bring God's Word to you. Um, given Mark's story of preaching 10 minutes his first time and panicking, I don't think that'll happen here. I hope not. I've led some Bible studies. I had the opportunity to preach at Grace Covenant Church in Seashells about a month and a half ago, and I didn't walk out after 10 minutes, so I trust I'm not going to walk out here. But uh, preaching in your own church, the church of which you're a member, is a little different. Uh, Jesus says a prophet's not accepted in his hometown. (laughs) But I will have you all be reminded that I'm from Winnipeg. I'm not from here, so that verse doesn't apply to me. Um, Let's bow our heads in prayer before we begin. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this Lord's Day where we can come together to worship you. I pray that you open our hearts and our minds to your word and what your word has for us and how we ought to live. Uh, Show us and enlighten us through your Holy Spirit that we may live in obedience to your word so that we may glorify you in all that we do in our lives. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you have probably seen videos online where somebody is distracted, they're texting, they're walking around, and they're walking into danger, whether they're walking out onto a street and about to be hit by a bus, they're walking and going to fall in the subway, and then some random stranger just comes along and grabs them and restrains them from the harm that was going to happen to them had that person not come along. They were restrained from the consequences of their own foolishness. And in this text today, we see something similar happen with David and with the intercession of his wife, the woman who becomes his wife in the story, uh, restraining him from his own destructive sinfulness. So in our text, uh, this is a part of David's life where David has not yet become king. He has been anointed by, uh, to be king by Samuel, the prophet, but he is not yet king, and he's actually running for his life at many points just before this. David is a war leader. He's at war with the Philistines, and he's under the command of Saul. And David knows, because he's been anointed by Samuel, that he will one day take Saul's place. Saul has also been prophesied to by Samuel that he will not be king for long. Saul knows this, he's chasing David down, and Saul's pride is getting to him because there are stories going around that David's troops kills tens of thousands and Saul's only killed thousands. Saul is jealous of this, and Saul has been chasing David around as he's at war with the Philistines, and this takes place right after Saul was delivered into David's hands. David had the opportunity to kill Saul, and yet he didn't. And Saul recognizes that David is the one without sin. While Saul had the sinful inclination and motive to go and kill David because of his pride that David was succeeding far above him, David yet restrained from what would be sin to kill Saul and instead did not do so. But David as we know, can be a man after God's own heart and is a man after God's own heart. 
and yet he commits gruesome sins. He will do something very virtuous as a man of God. And then he will, in the next story, the next part of the story of his life, he will do something greatly sinful. So David had just escaped Saul's wrath here. And David, at this point in his life, he's married to one woman who is Saul's daughter. And he is going on to fight with the Philistines, and he comes across a man named Nabal. And Nabal is a wealthy man, and David wants to make peace with him. Now, this could be for strategic uh, war strategies that he wants to have this land and it'll help him with the Philistines, or it'll just be a good ally in his uh, mission and a place where his troops can rest. But whatever it may be, David has the plan to make a relationship with Nabal. Now, Nabal's a rich man. He has um, many possessions, and he's married to a woman named Abigail. Now, Nabal, the name means fool. Um, My wife and I were not expecting any children yet, but we have talked about names, or at least I talk about names. And I like ancient Roman names if we have a son. I want to name my son Tiberius or Cicero. Or, and Tanya doesn't like the idea too much. But maybe if I suggest this, honey, why don't we name our child Nabal? It means fool. Maybe the Roman names won't sound too bad. But in Scripture, names mean something. Names um, signify something about the person. The name Nabal, meaning fool, is a good description of Nabal in this story. And we know in other places in Scripture, uh, Jacob is renamed Israel because he's the one who wrestles with God. And so names here have an important significance. As we see, as we go throughout this story, we'll see that Nabal is an appropriate name for this man. So David sends out young men of his to meet with Nabal and to build a relationship with him. Yet Nabal responds condescendingly. He acts like he doesn't know who David is. And this may or may not be the case, but he's probably lying here. He's probably being sarcastic. And that's because in this region, David was well-known. He was more well-known than Saul because songs were sung in praise of David. Earlier in 1 Samuel, uh, in chapter 18, verses 6 to 8, the writer of Samuel says that as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And so David was greatly praised for his war feats. And so it's unlikely that this uh, man Nabal did not know who David was. It's similar to how, not in Canada here, in Canada we tend to have statements about our leaders and governors that are not to be spoken from the pulpit, especially about Trudeau. But in uh, El Salvador, which I'm somewhat familiar with, having married a woman from there, 
the President Nayib Bukele is very well liked. And so when you go to El Salvador on shirts and mugs and calendars and anything you can see, any type of merchandise, there's pictures of Nayib Bukele. And the fame that Nayib has in the country is somewhat like the fame that David probably had, even though David was not yet king. So David was well known. Now, because of this, David probably had quite a bit of pride. He was prideful that he was essentially better than Saul and also slated to replace Saul as the king of Israel. So when Nabal condescendingly says, who is David? I don't know who this is. Who is the son of Jesse? This got in David's nerves. David probably felt his ego hit because this person is not acknowledging his prominence and significance. So what does David do? David goes out to kill Nabal and his men. This sort of response is disproportionate to the wrong that was done to him. While there is a wrong done to him, we ought to honor people who are more prominent than us. We ought to honor our superiors. David's response of death, killing all of Nabal's people, is a disproportionate amount of anger. David here is not just having righteous indignation. He's engaging in sinful anger. And it's ironic, as I had mentioned, just before this story happens, David is... He has Saul handed over to him, and he can commit a sin out of anger and kill Saul. And in his rage, he could have just then become king of Israel, and yet he didn't. And Saul mentions this to David in the previous chapter, in verse 17. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. So David can be a bit of a hypocrite. He can be a person who flip-flops between living in a righteous way and then acting on his worst impulses. The, the biblical standard of justice um, presented in Leviticus is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Whatever injury he is given, a person shall be given to him. Uh, jurists and lawyers like to call this lex talionis, but it's an even uh, reciprocation of evil done is what the justice should be. And for David, this is completely disproportionate. He is uh, given an insult, and he just goes above and beyond. However, there is hope for David because God will providentially use means to restrain us from evils that we have done, evils that we will commit. And he does this here, and he uses a means that we may not think is quite normal. So David is a man who is angry. He wants to 
uh, kill Nabal and his people. And Nabal's wife hears of this. Nabal's wife, Abigail, is someone who wants to protect her husband as well as protect her household. And so God is going to use her as a means to restrain David from his sin. Now, it's important to realize here that although David wants to act on very bad impulses, David could even be worse than this. David is not necessarily the worst he could possibly be. And in a Reformed church, we like to talk about total depravity. Uh, And total depravity isn't that we are as bad as we could be. God is already working in us that we uh, are not as bad as we could possibly be. But total depravity is that we are corrupted in both body and soul, in all parts of our being. But yet, David here is a converted David. David is not David outside of Christ in this story. When David was anointed with the Holy Spirit, the author says in 1 Samuel 16, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. David was filled with the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit regenerates us, we are not, no longer totally depraved. While there's indwelling sin in us, we are not totally corrupt. God is restoring us. And so David here in this story, he still has this indwelling sin. He is uh, wanting to act on evil impulses, and yet God is already restraining his heart motives. But even more than that, God is going to use means to hold David back from working out his sinful desires from his indwelling sin. So there are several ways that God will restrain people from sin, and sometimes God just doesn't restrain people from sin. Sometimes God will let your sin just be exposed. Uh, I used to work in a warehouse, and we used to use the same logistics trucking company every week to ship these pallets out to our retail stores, but the logistics company was starting to get a bit expensive. So our warehouse manager decided to try a different company, and he calls the truck, um, the, he's expecting the truck to come, but as he's expecting the truck to come, in walks the driver who usually takes our shipments. And he says, do you have any shipments for me today? And my warehouse manager says, no, nothing today. And the trucker says, well, what are these 13 pallets lined up ready to be shipped out? And the warehouse manager says, well, no, that's just, you know, it's uh, stuff we're working on, not ready to be shipped yet. And then this driver says, well, I actually work for a new company now. I work for the company you just called to take these pallets away. And my warehouse manager was shocked because he was just caught completely in his lie, completely exposed, and he just had to deal with it. Uh, These things will happen. Uh, God will let other sins be exposed. Judas is a good example. Judas um, sinned against Christ openly in betraying him, and Judas had no cover for his sin. There was no restraint in his sin. He was just let to betray our Lord. But yet in other cases, God will use sin and let you sin and use it for something 
that is in his providential plan. We all know of Joseph's brothers who sell him into slavery, and God uses that to bring the Israelites to Egypt, where he will establish them as a people. And of course, we know of Acts chapter 4, where the rulers who were against Christ, who crucified him, they were predestined to do so, so that Christ would die for us and for our salvation. But then God will also restrain sin. So an example of that, beyond what's in our text, is Abraham and Pharaoh. Pharaoh wanted to marry Abraham's wife, and Abraham lied. He said it was his sister, but God had made it known to Pharaoh that it was Abraham's sister, so Pharaoh did not go through with it. God restrained Pharaoh from committing what would be sin through letting him know that Abraham had lied to him. And in our text, God uses Abigail. Abigail intercedes for Nabal to David. Abigail gathers much of her household goods. She gathers these different sorts of foods, and she brings them as a sort of sacrifice in her intercession to David so that David will restrain from the punishment that he feels he is going to give to Nabal. Now, when we think about our own lives, when we think of sins that we could have committed and then didn't, we can be prideful about this. We can think to ourselves, well, I could have done that or done this. I wanted to do this, but I held back. And take pride in our ability to withhold ourselves from sin. But this is just to refrain from sin, to commit another sin of pride. And we ought not to do this. We ought not to uh, take credit for the work of God in our lives, nor should we look condescendingly on those given to sin. Those given to sin, uh, God may not restrain them from the sin that they are committing. God is using that evil for some good, but yet God has allowed them to go forward with their sin. And when they do that, it's not on us to condescendingly look down on the sin that they have committed. And so when people sin, we ought to have the attitude of love covering a multitude of sins. Nor should we be people who focus on the fact that God has restrained us from sin. We should focus on the fact that without God, we are in sin and in need of his forgiveness. So an example of somebody who was perhaps restrained from sin and yet thanked God and focused on the fact of, look at me, how God has restrained me from sin, is the Pharisee in Luke 18. Uh, Luke 18 records, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So the Pharisee here thanked God that he was not like other men. He was not given to these sins. And yet it was the one who asked for forgiveness that went down justified. And so if David here had the attitude of look how good he is that he refrained from sin in not obliterating Nabal and his people, he too would have been in sin for that. So Abigail intercedes, and this intercession includes a sacrifice of her household goods. She is giving up something in this intercession to uh, appease David's wrath. And intercession often requires sacrifice, and forgiveness often requires sacrifice. When you forgive somebody, you are sacrificing your own desire for justice to be done, for retribution to be done. You are showing mercy, and you are going to have to sacrifice your own desires for that retribution to occur. And similarly, intercession, when someone has done wrong and is going to face wrath or judgment because of it, they too will need some sacrifice. And so Abigail brings that with her household goods. Now, It's not like Nabal was without sin here. Nabal sinned against David by not giving David the honor that David was due. And in verse 39 of our text, God administers justice to Nabal. God strikes down Nabal 10 days after these events occur. And while Nabal's sin and David's response are disproportionate. David goes above and beyond what is necessary. In God's eyes, and because Nabal did not just sin against David, but also sinned against God, death given by God is an appropriate punishment. All sins against God, because God is an infinite being of infinite value, all sins against him are two of infinite value and require the ultimate punishment, which is death. So while David did not have the right to punish Nabal by death, God did, and so God still administers his justice to Nabal, but it's on his terms. And Paul alludes to this in Romans uh, 12, not to this text specifically, but this idea of God's justice. Uh, in Romans 12:19. Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And David similarly says, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. So while David had restrained himself from sin through God's means, the means of Abigail, God still avenged the sin that Nabal had committed. Now, for what we can think of to apply this text, 
Nabal's sin may seem small. He condescendingly uh, acted as if David was some unknown person. He insulted David. His insult and his disrespect was worthy of death. It was a serious sin. The sins that we commit, no matter how small, are still worthy of death. We commit great sins uh, throughout our lives, and they're great even if we view them as small. And we could sin more than we actually do because God is restraining us from sin, and he uses means to restrain us from sin. Now, that could be things that we don't think about. Maybe you're laden to work, and that's because you are stuck in traffic, and you get to work late. But if you had gotten to work earlier, you may have gotten into an argument with somebody and burst it out in rage. There's just no way of knowing the, all the intricate ways that God may work in our lives to restrain us from sin. But God, in his goodness and in his mercy, is doing so. Now, the means that God used in our text is a woman, and perhaps as a newly married man, and perhaps to all you more longer married men, uh, we may have our wives restrain us from sin in certain ways. And wives, maybe your husband is going to restrain you from sin in certain ways. But understand that the ways that God restrains us from sin is not just through purely working in our hearts, but he uses external and secondary means to do so. Additionally, when somebody sins, to be free of sin, to be free of the punishment that comes with sin, intercession is required. And in our text, Abigail intercedes. Now, David's wrath was unjust, but God's wrath to us is just because it is proportionate to the sins that we commit. No matter how small our sins, our sins require death by God, and that is a just punishment for our sins. And those sins, to be free of them, requires intercession. Now, Abigail had to bring a sacrifice, and the sacrifice in the grand scheme of things seems quite small. It seems uh, minuscule, but it was enough to appease David's wrath. But our Sin is so great that, like Abigail, we need intercession, but Christ is the one who intercedes for us. And Christ's sacrifice is far greater than the intercession that Abigail uh, provides to David. It is of infinite value for the infinite significance of our sin, and Christ, unlike Abigail, who just interceded for a small moment. Christ intercedes forever. Uh, Paul says in Hebrews, consequently, Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, God in his wisdom does not always restrain uh, things from happening that could happen, and thank God that he doesn't because Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane asked for God to restrain, for this cup not to be given to him. And yet God did not restrain. God poured his wrath on Christ. While David held back from giving Nabal the punishment he thought Nabal deserved, 
God did not hold back with Christ. And Christ bore that punishment, but he bore it on our behalf. He interceded for us, and he bore our punishment. And so now Christ will be king in the throne of David, and we too will join Christ in that kingdom. While David here was just anointed to be king, and his kingship, his life, was temporary, David David has a throne that Christ will sit on for all eternity. And he will be our king, he will be a just king, and he will continue to intercede for us for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how Christ is shown throughout all of Scripture, that the glories of the gospel are on every page that we may see what you have done in your uh, salvation plan for us through Christ, and that we can even see it through the sins of your servants like David. I pray that you use this as guidance for us, that we may uh, live lives honorable to you, that we restrain from sin through your Holy Spirit and through all the means that you restrain us from, and that you bless our lives, that we strive to live in obedience to you. I pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.